Should I see if I can make an iPhone messenger sound happen into the <laughs> microphone? Bloop. Mine goes Last week in tech. Welcome to Last Week in Tech, a podcast from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Karen Iozio. I'm Stan Horacek. And I'm Jason Letterman. Jason Letterman? What are you doing on this side of the microphone? I know, your long-suffering producer and editor finally talking. torture you. I think we're nice. Sure. A couple quick housekeeping things before we dive in. Just a little reminder, we're in a new studio space, so just bear with us for a little while few more weeks probably while we get everything sounding all snappy the way you're used to because this is not our new normal also you probably are looking at your calendars thinking last week in tech on friday last week in tech comes out on monday along with our new studio space we're working on a new production schedule so we'll be in your feeds on friday mornings until until i schedule you back on mondays Yes, but any scheduling changes we will continue to keep you in the loop about. Jason, let's talk about why you're here. Yeah, let's do it. You're here because you need a new phone. I do. Your iPhone is alarmingly old. My iPhone is from 2014. It's an iPhone 6. And with the iPhone XS recently out and the XS Max, and now the XR is finally available for pre-order. And so... I'm in a very fortunate position where I am the producer of a tech podcast and I have coworkers to whom I can turn and ask, should I get an iPhone XR? We have an iPhone 6, so you should get an iPhone 7, right? That is that how it works? You That's how counting works. You don't want to jump too far and not know how anything works. <laughs> but this is a real question that people have because the XR is the base model now. So when people are sort of flirting with this idea, Stan, of do I upgrade, don't I upgrade, the first thing they look at is the base model. Yeah. This was a week in which the 10R sort of made its its debut. Uh, it went up for pre-order. All the reviews came out this week. And, you know, the, the general consensus was literally exactly what everybody thought, which is that the iPhone 10R is exactly enough iPhone for, like, the vast majority of people. Um, you know, we've had the 10S and the 10S Max for a while now, and they're all over a thousand dollars. Like the Apple, the the iPhone flagship now is, and has been since last year when the iPhone 10 came out. Just the overkill model, like the future model, the the sort of new features, early adopter model, um, and the brag the, model. Yeah, the brag model, and the 10R has just become, you know, the iPhone that most people should buy. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny part about it is that. A lot of the reviews that came out this week say things like, Apple convinces you you don't need to spend $1,000 for a good phone. But Apple's the one who were the first people to tell me I should spend $1,000 on my phone. Yeah. The, the 10R marketing has been amazing. Because a year ago, all the headlines about the iPhone 10 were, oh my God, we're going into the era of the $1,000 phone. And now here we are, like literally 375 days later, and it's... Wow, you know what? You can get a pretty good phone for under a thousand dollars, which is absurd. Like the iPhone 10, it honestly feels like the iPhone 10 existed last year specifically to raise this floor. So now we just expect the iPhone 10R because the iPhone 10R costs seven hundred and fifty dollars. Jason, do you care about the form factor? The 10R, you know, now has the notch. It doesn't have the OLED screen. Do you care about all the new features or do you just want a more updated phone? 
Yeah, I think it's a, it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I definitely need a new phone. I get yelled at by family and friends alike. You know, my phone doesn't ring properly. It's impossible to hear somebody when I'm actually on a call. Um, it's nice that I'm getting Face ID. It's not something that's a priority for me, but that's baked into all of the Apple phones now. And as for LCD versus OLED, you know, I, I use my screen a pretty fair amount, um, but I don't think I'm going to be sitting up at night just crying that I don't have a slightly deeper black on videos and, and things that I'm watching. Yeah, that, that is the big difference is the display because you're this you're getting this screen that looks better ostensibly and at the same time it's also you're getting worse battery life yeah. <laughs> you know like there are real trade-offs for getting what's quote-unquote the best phone but are you getting are you getting a worse battery life because you're getting a better screen and it just takes more power to use that no i believe oled should inherently be more efficient than regular like mm. lcd which is what the iPhone XR is. Right, and that's because of the way that the screen actually works, the way the light happens, right? So when you look at the XR, you see that there's bezel, right? Which in 2018 is is a dirty word. That means there's like a frame around the screen, right? It's not just like you're holding this magical floating screen in your hand. There's bezel. And the reason that there's, you know, black space around the screen on the XR is because it's a regular LCD screen, which means it needs a backlight. It needs a light to like shine behind the screen to illuminate it for you. And inside those bezels, that's where that backlight lives. Whereas with the OLED in the 10s or the 10s Max, the backlight is, you know, inherently baked into the pixels of the display. So like that's the fundamental difference here that when you look at the two phones, like that's how you can tell them apart is just the presence of bezel. Noticing the difference for the average person, it's, is it something that you could imagine them noticing on a day-to-day -day, or is the difference not only that stark when you view the two types of screens side by side? Yeah, and I don't, I don't necessarily think that even if you view them side by side that you would be blown away by the difference. As much as they want the 10s and the 10s Max to like have a really impressive screen, Apple wants some level of consistency across their phones. So they're not going to just make them look wildly different um, than one another. You know, I had I've had the Pixel 3 and the iPhone 10s Max at my house for a while and when they're sitting on a table, I <laughs> have a very hard time telling them apart. I took the the Pixel 3 XL has a mode where the screen stays on passively, like it has a dark screen that shows you the time. And I turned it on just so I could tell the difference between which one was which. <laughs> um, because if you don't, they look almost identical. And that, that's sort of where we are in 2018, where all these phones are, are sort of jamming into one big pile. <laughs> <laughs> one, one big morass of phone. Which brings me to another point, Jason. Why you're committed to Apple. Right, you, even though all of these phones are bleeding closer and closer together, if you're looking at the new Pixel phones, you're in relatively similar price points, very similar features. Is anything enough to tempt you away, or are you just all Apple all the time? Yeah, I think if somebody made the right case, I could probably be convinced to go to a Pixel. But right now, I've been in the Apple ecosystem since I got this phone in 2014. My work computer, my home computer are both Mac, so being in that ecosystem and having features that work together is good for me. I have Google Apps on my phone. You know, I use Google Calendar as my primary app. Chrome is my primary browser. Gmail is my primary email app. 
So it's not like that can't get those features on the iPhone anyway. It's just what hardware manufacturer makes the phone. Yeah, ultimately, platform is the most important part of this. And, you know, if you're to go to Android, like, I'm a big fan of the Pixel phones. I think they're a great Switch phone. You know, one of our other editors, Amy Schellenbaum, she switched from iPhone to Pixel and says that it's gone really smoothly, which I'm not surprised by at all. Because at this point, we're all just sort of converging into one into one spot. I do the think, phone blob? Yeah, but I, I think there's like an interesting narrative here that from our standpoint, where like I've been doing this writing about gadgets and reviewing gadgets and reviewing phones for a long time, and I feel like my job used to be about telling people why they want really good stuff and why like oh here's something that's cool that maybe you don't understand why it's it costs extra money and we used to sort of not talk people into buying flagship devices but at least telling them why they're flagship devices where it's sort of shifted now especially in the past year or so where a lot of people I talk to, I have to talk them out of buying flagship devices just because they exist. You're telling them to step down. Yeah, where, you know, I've had some, I had someone say to me like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to buy an iPhone XS Max. I'm like, oh, that's a great phone, but why are you getting it over the XR? And they're like, because it's better. <laughs> I'm like, okay, tell me specifically what's better about it. And they're like, well, the screen's better. I'm like, okay, how? And that's it. Yeah, and Newer is always better. Yeah, Jason, that- is there anything we can do to talk you up? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Give me your best pitch. <laughs> yeah. So that's our job now. I think that's now. no. I think that's try me, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. I don't, I don't think the, the screen alone and the dual camera is worth an extra $250 to me. It's not for most people. Yeah. Either. Thank you, Jason. Average phone consumer. You're very welcome. And we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey pals, looking for super cool popular science merch? We've got you covered at popsci.threadless.com. Pick up t-shirts, notebooks, and mugs with iconic vintage covers and illustrations ripped from the magazine. Plus, check out our podcast store and rep your favorite shows like Last Week in Tech and The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. That's popsci.threadless.com. P-O-P-S-C-I dot threadless.com. And the next topic is... We're back. Last week, Facebook did something that's fairly unheard of in at least social media app ecosystems. They released the fourth iteration of Messenger, but that's not what's interesting. What's interesting is that the fourth iteration of Messenger got simpler, not more complicated. Do you use Messenger, Gorin? I use iMessage almost exclusively. I think the Messenger generation, Facebook Messenger specifically, sort of passed me by. Anybody who I talk to with any regularity, I've always had their phone number. Yeah, I guess so. Because I've, I've used Facebook Messenger a lot, but primarily because I don't want to use iMessage because it doesn't sync over my computer. But like it has, but it, got, can. it has gotten really, it, it can, but it always doesn't, I feel like. But now like, so I'm excited about Facebook Messenger. So like what, what exactly is it that's new? It's simpler now. It's so much simpler. Is Facebook, there less stuff? There's exponentially less stuff. There are now only three tabs in Facebook Messenger. The main tab is the people tab, which is just a running list of your contacts. Then there's a chats tab, which is active conversations that you have. And then there's the sort of nebulous discover tab where they've migrated all of the businesses and the bots. And this is coming down from dozens and dozens of tabs before there was, this is not an exhaustive list, but there were tabs for bots, for games, for payments, for friends who happen to be online at that point, for all of your different groups, lists of past calls, lists of businesses. And it was 
it had gotten completely insane and so, so far away from where it started when Facebook launched Messenger as its as a standalone app in 2014, which was basically just Facebook chat in its own thing with a bunch of fun stickers. And then they just couldn't stop adding. So this is a serious dial back. Yeah, I remember very specifically opening that games tab a couple times by accident and just for, what is happening. <laughs> yeah. And even the the regular interface is so much better. It's so much cleaner than it was. There used to be this giant massive video camera share button that was sort of one of the largest things on the screen. And now that's been minimized and they're really just prioritizing the ways that people communicate as opposed to sort of shoving in your face that you should constantly be making content. Right. Yeah, because that, that's ultimately what this is about. This is about one-to-one or group conversations with people. Oh, yeah. And massively, massively populated video chats, Stan, your most favorite thing. <laughs> right. Here's our weekly update on my ability to video chat is that no one will do it with me. I want to test it out, but everyone, <laughs> no one wants to be Stan, my Stan, you never call buddy. me. You never call me, Stan. I'm always willing to talk to you. Well, this is, it's an interesting point, though, because we are obviously we're transitioning studio space, but we're also transitioning office space, which means that we have a lot of people who are working remotely, at least for the time being. So we're reliant much more on video chat. And I even now we're having to actively ask people like, hey, would you mind turning your camera on? Yeah, and I won't. I'm no, not. Stan I'm, flat refuses. I'm never, never going to. I don't want people to see how I live or how I look <laughs> or wh- what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's just not my thing. But so, video chat is still a big part of Messenger. Oh yes, absolutely. But Facebook had been working on this upgrade. I want to say so that I can then say, which is actually a downgrade, but not really, because as far as their users are concerned. This is what they wanted this app to be. Facebook did a bunch of its own research into what people who were really active users on Messenger wanted. About They've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.3 billion with a B active Messenger users every month. And what they found, surprise, surprise, was that 70% of people wanted the thing to work more than they wanted more crap in it. Does that mean it's still, is there still stuff like features in it? Like, can you, can I still send someone $4? You can still do the payments and the games, but you have to be active in a conversation for all of those options to show up. Okay. Yeah, because there was always this weird vibe about Facebook Messenger where it always seemed like they thought I was just opening up Messenger when I was bored and like looking for something to do. Like, who's around that I can challenge to this game of Facebook checkers or whatever monkey checkers? I don't know. I don't know if any of those are Well, that was sort of the point of separating Messenger into its own app, right? Then you double the number of users you have because you have the users on Facebook who are also now on Messenger. And you can bring in these new features, right? So it becomes a place to go. At least that's what Facebook wanted. Exactly. But then I also think back to, you know, all of like the horrible Farmville notifications just completely destroying my newsfeed. And to think that Messenger started off as a place that was largely free of all of that and slowly just through total feature creep, which is a term that we should all coin got to a place where all of the garbage that we were trying to escape was now just so aggressively in our faces again. It's really refreshing to see somebody just Marie Kondoing their design real hard. Though it seems like they're still trying to encourage people to interact with things that aren't necessarily people. Oh, absolutely. When you talk about things like chatbots for customer service or for interacting with brands, which are the things that you do through the third tab, the discover tab, which 
people will probably mostly end up in by accident, if I had to guess. That is one of the places that people are going to be interacting with chatbots more often than they are right now, even without even knowing it. Checking the inventory or the stock of a jacket that you're looking for at the Gap could very easily be something that you think you're just having a conversation with a customer service rep, but it's a programmed bot. Yeah, that's a weird vibe when you... You know, the the companies that have those bots programmed into their Facebook pages, like when I like a barbecue restaurant or something and it's like that messenger window pops up and it's like, would you like to ask a question to the barbecue restaurant? There's a moment of like, oh, my God, should I have something to ask? Like, I feel like it may I please have all of the barbecue. (laughs) It wants me to ask them a question and I don't I don't have one. And also but like this is also Facebook doing a thing now where it kind of seems like they're leveraging businesses into being present on messenger more and more often like if they're proactively telling people who like your page to send you messages that's also retroactively telling businesses that you better answer these stupid messages now and i wouldn't be surprised we've all had experiences where you're browsing on a on a website shopping looking at some sort of new internet service and the little customer service window plops up in the corner like hey can we help you like with your frame bridge purchase or whatever it happens to be. And I think this is just us inching towards a situation where those types of bots could be the same bots that you're interacting with in Facebook Messenger. Like, can you sort of see it spinning out yeah. beyond and becoming that I, that customer service embed? I don't want it. I don't, I don't want, I don't like going to a store where people try to sell me stuff. That's like one of the huge benefits of shopping online is that I can just sit there and like gawk at stuff without anyone coming over to say like, oh, can I help you? Can I, can I bother you? You know, like, and now we're sort of taking the worst part about shopping and putting it into shopping, which I am not a super huge fan of. And also if I was a business owner, this idea that Facebook is going to give me a bad ranking if I don't respond to every dumb message that every dumb person sends me immediately. Because if you have a business page on Facebook, you go in and it tells you like, here's your response rate and here's how long it typically takes you to respond to a message. And it'll show that to people. Like that's kind of scary. Well, and they're all, they'll also just like straight up take your page down if you're just not active enough. Yeah, if you don't if you don't try hard enough. I have like a journalist page for myself and like I don't know, I just got it because I felt like I should have got it. You know, it's like that old thing from the early 2000s where you're like I need to get my Twitter handle and my website and mm-hmm, my mm-hmm. URL, you know, it's just like okay, I'll get my Facebook page and then I barely post it to it and they threatened to take it down and I went right back to using it. So it worked. I'm an idiot. How many messaging services systems do you use, Jason? I use iMessage slash texting, Facebook Messenger, Twitter DMs, Instagram DMs, WhatsApp, Slack. And do you have different Slack. types of conversations on different platforms? Obviously, oh, yeah, Slack absolutely. is what we use for work, so I know what you do there, I hope. I just goof off on Slack all day long. I'm well aware. Yeah. I know a lot of people who use Slack for work, but then also have personal Slack groups. Oh, Slack. yeah, for sure. Yeah, like, oh, the family Slack. I heard someone say that the other day. Yeah, was... one of our other video producers has a, a family Slack that I know he switches back and forth. I, there's just so many different... I have conversations with my wife and my daughter in like four or five different <laughs> things like iMessage and text and Facebook Messenger. I will say like if, if I'm having a continuous conversation, like a real conversation, that's usually an iMessage or text. Usually when I'm using another platform, it has to do with that platform. So like, oh, this is a funny Instagram post. Let me send this to my buddy. And then we'll talk about that post continually in Instagram or, or on Twitter or whatever. And I assume you 
gravitate to Snapchat for the ephemeral nature of it? Yeah. Oh, that's another one I use. Yeah. Um, but I typically at this point, I just use Snapchat when somebody snaps it to me. I'm not actively going on Snapchat to send things to other people. <laughs> so are you happy about the notion of a messenger like Facebook seemingly, at least on the surface, doing less things, even if all those extra things are a little bit further down? Yeah, absolutely. I remember when Facebook first launched and it was like so clean compared to MySpace. And then when Facebook chat launched, I said, this is going to put AIM out of service because it's baked into this platform we're all using. Um, and it's very simple. Like you click on the name, you type your message and that's it. So I think returning back to that is a good plan for Facebook. One of the things I could do without on Facebook Messenger is the read receipt. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, oh, that's the, the worst. Oh, so <laughs> yeah. horrible. That's like, I really like Facebook Messenger, but I'm pretty sick of it showing people when I... Because, when I ignore them deliberately. Yeah, sometimes I'll have to just like ignore that little window in the bottom of my page just so I know they don't get the check. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does anybody else judge other people on iMessage who haven't turned off their read receipts. I like that I can see when they've read my messages, but I'm not turning it back it on for anybody. It makes me feel superior. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. No, I'm just a garbage person who has like 60 unread texts right now. I don't clear them. Your notification bubbles give me stress. Yeah, I'm a bad person. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. But take this opportunity if you just realize, oh crap, my read receipts are on, maybe go turn them off and we'll be right back. Set your aim away message. Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech articles every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. New episodes come out every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and almost everywhere you can listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, weirdos. On to the next thing. And we're back. Earlier this week, Apple CEO Tim Cook gave a 22-minute speech at a privacy conference in Brussels about what he sees as the future of user data privacy if Apple could write laws. Stan, what were the key points? It was a lot of strong statements in Tim Cook's uh, speech this week. He basically explicitly said that Apple supports a sweeping digital privacy law in the United States, like the one that they have in Europe right now called GDPR. This is something we've heard a lot of big tech CEOs asked about, like sometimes in front of Congress. You know, we heard Congress members ask Mark Zuckerberg, do you think we should have this kind of regulation? And he was real dodgy about it. He and Jack Dorsey, right? Yeah, they, they all said, we support regulation if it's the right regulation, which is like the most non-answer answer of all time. Right. So, But what we got from Tim Cook is the actual answer to that question. In Tim Cook's mind, this is the right regulation. Yeah, Tim Cook came out of the gate and said, we really like GDPR, which is the general data protection regulation. That's Good day, Puerto Rico. Someone was going to do it. Yes. Uh, so he came out and said that they, they like how, how much protection it gives users and that Apple supports something like that in the United States. Um, he also like directly called out some people like CEOs and other Cong you know, people from Congress, not by name, but he, he said, you know, there are people who support regulation in public. But then when it comes to actually trying to enact something, they're very like against it or they'll do what they can to inhibit it. Um, he at one point, there, But he he gave us very specific things, right? He almost, yeah. It was almost like 
Tim Cook's four tenets of data privacy. Yeah, so there are four what what Tim Cook calls rights on which all these laws should be based. And the, the first one is the right to have personal data minimized, which is him encouraging companies to anonymize user data that they have or just not to collect it at all, if possible, which seems very lofty. But this is sort of what, one of the things Tim Cook has talked about for a long time. You know, he's been, you know, a, a He's been for digital privacy for a long time, at least outwardly so. You know, not everybody believes it because big tech companies, <laughs> you know, their their reputation is whatever. But They're really good at, hey, look over here. Yeah. Um, the second one is the right to knowledge, which is not tricking people into giving up information by is sort of obscuring how much stuff is being collected in these really complicated terms of service documents. Right. So this is like the... Talk English, please. Yeah, the GDPR has this. This is like why earlier this year you got all those emails in your inbox about like, oh, this Facebook is changing its terms of service and Google's changing its terms of service. That was all because GDPR has something in it like this where companies are supposed to be very clear about what they're collecting. But Tim Cook even says he wants people to know how the companies are using the data that they're collecting, which is even a step forward beyond what we're used to. Um, talking about. All right, number three. Door number three. Yeah, so number three is the right to access. And this is something that earlier this week, Apple made it so that you could log into your Apple security portal and download and look at all the information that Apple has collected about you. Um, And there's a bunch. (laughs) This is, but this isn't new globally, right? That's something that's just new for people in the US. Yeah, so it's a it's a new feature that we couldn't do before here in the United States. and But now you can go and you can see it all in one big spot, uh, which is not something we had access to before. And you can download it. And sometimes it's gigabytes worth of stuff because it's all the stuff you have in the iCloud. It's all your calendar stuff. It's your app. If you use Apple Pay, it's like all the stuff you've bought via Apple Pay. So the third right that Tim Cook says you should have is that you should be able to access that stuff and then delete it if you want, but also correct it if it's wrong, um, which is an interesting concept that you'd want to go and sort of give the right information, you know, for whatever's happening. So that's more the Zuckerberg model where he says the more the company knows about you, the better we can serve you with ads and products. So you can actually say, this is what I like. You've got it wrong. Yeah. So you can go. That's exactly right. You know, because they, these companies do sort of need some information about you if you want all of this personalized stuff. And then the fourth right is the right to security, which means if we're going to give all these companies these all this personal data, you know, and we're going to trust them with it, then they owe it to us to not let some jerk come and steal it and steal your identity or mess with your Facebook account or use your credit card. And if some jerk does happen to do that, the company, I would assume, then has to do something about it. Yeah, and they have to let you know about it. You know, that's one of the big tenets of, of GDPR is that if there's a data breach and people are affected, you, the company now has 72 hours uh, under European Union rules to alert the people who are affected. If they don't, then the penalty is something like 2% of their revenue per day or something like that. It's literally could be hundreds of millions of dollars really, really fast if they don't let people in. As an example, the Google Plus breach that happened that we learned about last week, but happened, what, years ago? Yeah. That would... Google would be out of business from the money they owed in a, in a scenario like right. that. Right. You know, so GDPR went into effect in May, but it had been in the works since for two years before that because they, you know, they when they passed it, they realized it was going to take some time. Mm-hmm. We sort of talked as 
Tim Cook is this white knight so far and this guy who's like calling for all these regulations. Regulate me. <laughs> right. Um, and I think this is a nice way to segue into the idea that Tim Cook said the sentence, if we can do this, anyone can do this. Right. And that to me is one of the, the most controversial statements in the whole thing, because Apple is one of the richest companies in the world. And one of the big sort of uh, criticisms of GDPR is that it puts all these new regulations on smaller startup companies and it costs them money and it costs them resources. And if you're Apple, you can hire 100 lawyers, you can spend $100 million and, and not really think about it because you have billions of dollars. But if you're a small company starting up and you have to make sure you comply with all these things and there's all these regulations to keep track of and if you screw up, the penalty is really severe, like that's a hindrance mm-hmm. for smaller companies. So is Tim Cook saying that them do... Apple doing these things isn't as big of a lift as it might appear. Is that what he means when he says anybody can do this? I think he's I think his point is that they're one of the biggest they're the biggest company in the world and that if they can manage to get all of this data together and do all this as the biggest company, then the smaller companies have less to manage. Um, you know, and they're like if we can do it as the biggest company, then smaller companies should be able to do it too. Which is why it's one of the more controversial statements, because it speaks to one of the biggest criticisms of GDPR in the first place. The other criticisms that come from a a thing like this is that Apple has business dealings with other big tech companies. Google pays Apple to keep Google as the default search engine on Safari, right? That allows Google to gather information about Safari users, and that's an Apple product. So like... Those things tie together in a very complicated way. Right. And them being intertwined also sort of underscores a lot of what Tim Cook was saying, which is none of these things exist in a vacuum. It makes it all sound very much like the first domino. Is that what we're driving towards? Yeah, because regulation is going to happen at some point. Like, that's very clear. You know, even even Mark Zuckerberg has said, you know, we're we're with regulation of the Internet. Um, But in America, it's such a patchwork right now mm-hmm. like it's impossible to navigate so at the end of near in 2016 the fcc which was under different leadership back then obviously under the obama administration passed a rule that said if a broadband provider wants to sell information that it collected about users on its network it needs to get explicit permission that was supposed to go into effect in december of 2017 in march of 2017 <laughs> the house voted to block those rules from going into effect, basically saying that why would these big companies ever do anything that might cause their users not to trust them? Why should we use a regulation to make them act good? <laughs> and then the rules didn't go into effect. So like, that's what it's like to, to try and keep up with digital reg- privacy regulation in the United States, is that rules get passed and then get re- turned over before they even happen. So it's hard. Last question for both of you. Have either of you downloaded your data? I requested mine. I have not yet. Do you want to? Do you want to see it? Yes and no. Like, I don't want to know what they have on me, but I kind of want to know. I think some of them are going to be more interesting. When you go to the actual page, there's a bunch of checkboxes, and it lets you download your your iCloud stuff. And, like, that's boring. That's just your iCloud stuff. But, like, things like Apple Pay... That's interesting to me, like login information, like things where I've logged in and like device information, you know, that's one of the checkboxes. And that to me sounds interesting. The problem is that it's it's literally gigabytes worth of data. 
So when you request it, they send you an email. And they're like, we're preparing it, which is the same thing that Facebook and Instagram and all right. those do. Right. So, I hope it comes with like an executive summary at the top of it because, geez. No, no. You're going to get a big old download full of stuff that you have to interpret yourself. And it is going to be complicated. Well, then, I don't know. I, I You know, bravo, good for them. But help yeah. me understand what it is that I'm looking at. Yeah, we, we have a lot of right now. We have a lot of responsibility as Internet users for our own privacy uh, and unless you really trust internet companies and digital companies to do the right thing regardless of whether it makes them money or not and like spoiler alert you shouldn't trust them <laughs> to do but, that but why not we don't need regulation they'll do the right thing why would they do something that hurts their customers right yeah oh jason sold me <laughs> get tim cook on the we've horn we've resolved everything i did right it here. you guys we don't sorry tim cook last week in tech guys we got you one last thing before we sign off for the week last week when we were talking about new biometric security screenings at customs and border protection in airports we asked you guys if you had any experiences with any of these systems and we got a response from one of our dear listeners who was transiting through charles de gaulle airport on their way to berlin yeah we got a message from our listener jelle on our soundcloud account And it says, Hey guys, I wanted to share my experience at the Paris Charles de Gaulle airport with you. I flew from Montreal to Paris and had to catch a connecting flight to Berlin. Because our flight had been late, I didn't have much time to catch my flight. But everyone around me seemed to be late for their connection as well, and the passport control was pure chaos. Everyone wanted to go first to trying to talk to the French airport personnel and showing them their boarding passes. The personnel were letting people with a European passport through to use the facial recognition screening. I scanned my passport, went through a door, and waited for my face to be matched against my passport and left through another door. It took some time to recognize my face, but I was so much faster than all the other travelers who had to wait for the humans to check their passport. The problem at airports often seems to be not enough personnel. I've never seen all the kiosks occupied by police officers, and that can be solved by putting more scanners. I also want to tell you that I enjoy your podcasts very much. It's informative, but also entertaining. I always love the dynamic between the hosts. You guys seem to be a great team. Greetings from Berlin, Jella. That's such great feedback to hear that in a situation where the biometric security, the automated security can be used to supplement and ease a really crappy log jammed situation. It is working, but of course the most important thing is that we thank you very much for listening and accept your compliments with copious gratitude. You should recognize <laughs> the smile on Corinne's face right now. She is so grinning happy. from ear to ear. <laughs> That's going to be it for this week. We will talk to you again next Friday. Last Week in Tech is a popular science podcast. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening to us right now. And if you like the show, please go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes. Check out our merch, including Last Week in Tech t-shirts and mugs, at popside.threadless.com. The show is produced by Stan, Rob, and me, Corinne Iozio, as well as our editor, Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have any questions, tips, or suggestions, tweet us at Last Week in Tech. Alexa, order me a smartphone. It doesn't matter which one, because they're all the same and eventually will die.